Welcome to Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Join me in welcoming my guests as we'll discuss the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape and examine what is really happening inside big healthcare. Today, we'll explore a healthcare topic not often discussed, plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures. Join me in welcoming my guest, founder of Quill Drive, Heather Haka, a writer, nurse, medical content creator, and strategist. In this conversation, Heather and I explore the gaps in communication between physicians and patients, touch on the knowledge deficit that exists, and expose where patients go hunting for detailed information, and how, when executed well, these procedures can be a catalyst to live life. We'll examine the various procedures for both men and women and uncover the risk of the quote-unquote exotic getaways patients may opt for when considering augmentation. We will then plunge into the potential psychological and financial implications, and my conversation with Heather will conclude with the most alarming reveal of all, the DIY injections and procedures currently presented as okay to do on various social media platforms. Be prepared to be mind-blown, all on Healthcare 360. Thank you again for joining. This is Healthcare 360. I am your host, Scott Burgess. And today, I have a new friend. This is uh, Heather Halka. She's a registered nurse, and she lives in Toronto, Canada. She's uh, developed quite a bit of expertise in the cosmetic surgery. And I want to stop there for a second, kind of explain why that's important to me. I have four daughters. I have a beautiful wife. And the social influence of augmented cosmetic surgery specifically the standard that women feel they have to lead up to, there's a lot of dangers that follow with that. It's not discussed. What is discussed is how beautiful you look or how pretty you look. Heather works directly beside those patients who decide to cosmetic surgery and deals with the surgeons as well. But she also sees the other side where it doesn't turn out so well. And not necessarily for the surgeons or the hospitals in the United States so much or in Canada, but when you hear about the exotic trips with it, it's done really cheap. She really has a clear understanding about what the side effects are, the things you should be watching out for. And this podcast is for, I don't want to say the women, because I know it happens. Oh, growing amount of men as well. Right. But it's for the people who are at least considering and no one talks about it. So that's why I want to bring it onto the show so we can actually identify it, bring it to light and get some real inside information to help those people exhaust their options before they come to their conclusions. You can ask her questions if you hook up with her on LinkedIn. So Heather, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What we were just talking about right before we did the quick introduction, what's really happening at the bedside? And you're mm-hmm. talking about the communication piece with the surgeons. So what are you finding that's going on there between surgeon or slash physician-patient relationships and communication and everything that you're trying to build? Well, one thing that has stood out to me over the years, and it's still a point that I'm really passionate about and interested in working on, is the gaps in communication. There's definitely a ton of information, like you said, all over social media, cosmetic surgery and aesthetic procedures are becoming more socially acceptable and super popular. So people are talking about aspects of it, But I do sense that there are gaps in communication when it comes to understanding the risks and recovery. I know that a lot of patients are going online looking for answers on random chat forums. There's a huge forum called realself.com. And people do speak with doctors on there, which is great. But it is never as good as getting information from your surgeon. So 
I still sense that there's a lot of knowledge deficit around the realities of surgery and the recovery and all the little details and people are hungry for that knowledge. So yeah. realself.com, they're actually speaking with a real physician, surgeon? Yes. Yeah. So surgeons have accounts. Most of the communication is in the U.S. and Canada. Are they primarily based in the North America continent? I find that they are, yes. And also for legal reasons, and I don't blame them, what they will typically do is give very brief, very vague answers. They're hunting for detailed information online that they should be getting in person from their doctor. So let me ask a question on that now. With their hunting for information online, are they hunting for answers of justification for their mindset? Are they saying, oh, well, I read this online, and so they're convincing themselves or their family members to redirect them to approve of what they're looking to do? That's probably part of it, yeah. In the, the pre-op stages when people are researching, I'm sure they're looking for a lot of really positive feedback about the, the surgery they want. So they're looking for patient reviews, and they're going to read all the positive ones where everybody said it was fantastic, this has changed my life, I love it. And they're going to want to gather up all of that so they can feel really confident about their decision. There's also the concern after having a procedure, though, where people may be uh, concerned with some unusual signs and symptoms, swelling or pain they're having or anything that looks unusual. And they're going online to ask about that as well. Wow. Okay. So what are the top three cosmetic procedures that women haven't done? Breast augmentation, for sure. I believe rhinoplasty is still number one uh, for men and women. Tummy tucks are also on the rise. Tummy tuck surgery, which is a fairly major surgery, is also very popular. So a lot of people are combining tummy tucks and breast augmentations or breast lifts, and they're calling that a mommy makeover. Mommy so, makeover doesn't just include breasts and tummy. Sometimes it's more, but that's usually the target. Earlier in my career... I think it was year one or year two when I first got into medical consulting, I saw a tummy tuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you saw the operation? I was right there. It was unbelievable. The length of the incision, where the incision was, you see the skin flapping back and forth. It looks like a piece of meat. There was someone with the, the turkey baster, if you will, uh, with the yes. antibiotic, and they were squirting every 45 seconds to make sure they got every area as they were sizing everything up. And then what they had to do with a specific surgical table to make sure that when they folded it back down, it looked correct, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about your experience, about what you've seen inside the OR and some of those procedures that you just talked about. Well, so I've, I've seen surgeries, but I, I'm not in the OR. So my role is a patient care coordinator. It has been that for about five years. So I'm walking people through their preparation and then their recovery, not in the operating room, but I've seen them <laughs> definitely. And when it comes to recovery and making sure that that nice long incision heals properly and walking people through their first few weeks of recovery, that's what I'm intimately familiar with and now writing about it. So I write uh, for surgeon, their patient instructions and details for education. So I'm new to making my own videos and I still feel a little shy about that, but I've made three so far and I'm going to go for a series of five or six. What kind of videos are you going to be focused on? Well, so along those lines, I'm going to make five or six talking about really easy ways that 
practice owners can improve communication and benefit their patients. So it's a win-win. I think a lot of doctors and other practitioners are super busy and they're a little intimidated by the idea of having to communicate more. Like it doesn't sound doable, right? They're stretched super thin. Yeah, I'm just offering practical tips that will improve communication without taking more of their time, bottom line. And and it's going to make patients happier. Yeah, and this is from the, do you understand what what this looks like from a outside view or you see where you can contribute back? Yeah, and I think I have a unique empathy about it as well because I definitely do understand how busy the doctors and nurses are dealing with patients. I totally get it. So I've been on that side, but I'm also a patient. I also know what it feels like to uh, wish that you had answers and wish you could reach someone and feel kind of invisible or, yeah. I get it from both sides. So I think I'm in a in a good position to talk about it, hopefully. Right. I, I, that's a great talking point. I mean, I, that's a lot of the focus on the podcast so far has really centered around communication. And yeah. the couple that we've done so far that were patient-centric and the lack of and the frustration to the people who are trying to uh, help the patient manage, the people who are kind of doing the transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So those pieces are critically important. So, yeah, the tummy tuck procedure, a full standard abdominoplasty is fairly major, which is one of the reasons why I I hope and would like to see better information given to people about what's required of them for recovery mm-hmm. and what the risks are. It's a great procedure. It, it can produce dramatic results. I've seen people's lives changed from it for sure. Typically women who've had a number of pregnancies or a large pregnancy and things just don't bounce back. And they have, I don't know if you've heard of a diastasis recti. So when the abdominal muscles are pulled apart, they they don't quite go back. They kind of open up and they don't heal up correctly or have enough scar tissue to pull them back together. Yeah. So the fabric that sort of holds those muscles together is stretched and it has no bounce. It doesn't come back. So you end up with a kind of a permanent pot belly, but also uh, difficulties exercising and posture problems and back problems and things like that. Fixing that isn't covered by our provincial health insurance here. It is considered cosmetic. Yeah, I have to go back there. That's a really interesting point. All right, so we have these surgeries that we identified for the female side. What are the top three for the male side? Facial, men are still getting a lot of rhinoplasties. Gynecomastia surgery is is also on the rise, I believe, which is removing male breasts if it's slight amount of growth there. And that's really common. I've seen, um, I think, percentages around like 50 to 60% of men that have an issue with that. And it's not as talked about. So, is that because of fatty tissue and lifestyle habits or is it more because of steroidal use? Because when men take steroids for a long period of time, that happens. It's usually a hormonal breast glandular tissue growth thing more so than fat, or it could be a combination of the two. And what would the third one be? Liposuction is still a big one, and liposuction techniques have improved. It is one of the surgeries that can leave you with the least amount of scarring, if if it can be seen at all. It can be done really discreetly. So when you've got that stubborn little spare tire or love handles, mm-hmm. lipo is good for that. So yeah, men choose that as well. Let's get to the root cause of this and and get right into it. One of the things I want to talk about specifically, going the quote unquote cheap way out. Yeah. So in the United States, a mommy makeover, so we'll we'll, we'll stick with that one because that's 
what most people are probably looking for after childbirth. You told me in Canada that is somewhere between sixteen, seventeen thousand at a minimum, upwards of like twenty five thousand dollars for that one procedure. It's two segments of that procedure for that one procedure. Okay. Yes. But there are the these getaways. Yeah. These getaways. And the one you just read right before we went live, sub three thousand dollars, concierge pickup, limo to and from the airport. Yeah. Eight days in a four star hotel. The surgery fees, the anesthesia, all the appointments, all the transportation, and uh, and of course, beautiful pictures that entice you with a luxury stay. A lot of expense there, just in the accommodations, for sure. And it's all in for this incredibly low price. What's the problem with that? Go. <laughs> Sometimes, no problem. Sometimes, right? There's, there's a large percentage of people, I'm sure, who are traveling... Uh, Dominican is a popular spot. Mexico, Turkey, and India and Thailand are popular destinations. And there are tons of people coming from the UK and Canada and the States every year and having procedures and loving their results. But one of the problems with that is you don't know what you're getting. You know that the marketing can sell you uh, dubious things, right? So what do you mean by that? So you don't know what training and skills your surgeon has. Here, any doctor can perform a surgery technically. They're allowed. That doesn't mean they're necessarily trained for it. It doesn't mean they're a plastic surgeon with, you know, many years of training in that specific area. And that's with our rigorous testing and accreditation and board certification. When you go into another country, you don't know what their standards are, and you may see some kind of certification for the surgeon and assume that means they're very skilled, very well-trained, but you might not know if that's the case. And then the other thing is you don't know what is required for an OR to be safe, what's required for your anesthesiologist to be skilled and to do a good job. A lot of people don't understand those components and the important licensed individuals that need to be in the room and make sure that you have a safe surgery. If the website of this wonderful travel surgery website tells you everything is safe, you, you may think that sounds great and not actually know what it means. So there, there's definitely uh, ORs that are not clean not sterile. I've even heard of uh, hair transplants, especially in Turkey, because it's so popular to go there for cheap hair transplants, where people have shown up and found out that the OR was a series of folding beds. So you're lined up with multiple other people, which is not okay. That's not okay for any kind of surgical environment. And then technicians lined up like nail techs. And hair transplant surgery can be considered relatively minor, but it can also cause horrendous problems, major infections or tissue loss if it's not done right. So, yeah, it's risky. Mold, virus, mm -hmm. bacteria, sure. and spores are the number four killers in the world. So once you break the skin and that gets in your bloodstream, guess what? You're getting an infection of something. Right. Yeah. And then now you're going to add to this issue the fact that you're packing up and getting on a plane and leaving. So you're not going to be able to follow up with your surgeon. You're how, not going to maybe speak the same language. How is that possible? How could you get a quote-unquote mommy makeover? We just camp out there for a second. Or even just one of the yeah. two, right? And yeah. then on a plane, pressures of altitude and the incisions. How is that possible? So, well, they'll usually, most, uh, will keep you for a week, which is essential, but it, it should typically be a bit longer. 
And they want to mitigate the risks of having a, a blood clot issue, you know, on the plane, but there's no hard and fast rules for that. So it comes down to assessing the individual patient, their age, their health history, any other medical issues they also have, any medications they take. And these things are kind of all factored in to be their individual risk factor. So a lot of healthy young people are considered to have a very low risk factor for forming blood clots, especially if they've had a short surgery. If you've been under general anesthetic for a long time, your risks go up. Given all of those different factors, a surgeon may say you're fine to go and send you on your way. Being free to leave and being free to carry luggage and go through the stress of traveling are two different things. So it can, it can be a bit much. The problems that you've seen as a nurse working mm -hmm. alongside these people on a successful surgery, what does mm -hmm. that mean? Yeah, it, the stories that I've interacted with have been some of the most heartwarming, amazing stories about people who felt incredibly self-conscious over their body, whether it's a mom who's had a few children and her body's changed a lot or uh, patients who've lost significant weight they're carrying around extra skin that it not only makes them self-conscious about how they look, but it can make movement difficult. It can make going to the gym difficult. I've definitely laughed and cried and celebrated with patients who a month or two after surgery feel like a new person, love how they look, love how they feel. And that's sort of a, a catalyst that pushes them to go to the gym and put on a dress and go out and have fun and feel pretty. And those are lovely things worth celebrating for sure. So I've definitely seen that and appreciated that. And I can see the value there, especially for a woman. And I, I'm very cognizant of that because of my daughters uh, to make yeah. sure they're, they feel loved and they are loved. And sometimes I'm hard. Uh, without question, a lot of times when my girls come over, and it's more about the mindset thing for me right now with, with my with my kids as they're growing up. I have a 14 year old, 12 year old twins, and a 10 year old. Where they say something, I'm like, "So what are you going to do about it?" And then yeah. I'll give them a second pause to kind of see how they're going to fight through. We're in that beginning stage of all that. How they look. How they oh fit. yeah, yeah. You're at the beginning. Thankfully, if the, if your oldest is 14, you've got a little time. So, someone now has successful surgery. But let's say, let's say mm -hmm. someone uh, goes for the option of taking that luxurious trip and that getaway to Mexico mm -hmm. or Thailand or India, like you said, and they're taking yeah. what we would consider the cheap way out because we know better. We're in the healthcare business. We're, we're a part of the healthcare network. And they go for that 6000 or that $3,000 package deal. Right. What have you seen on the reverse side of that where it's gone wrong? Well, I've... Some of the saddest stories I've heard are people coming home and winding up going into incredible debt to pay for medical services they now need to fix mistakes. So to treat infections, to treat wounds that won't heal, to have implants removed, to have reconstructive surgery. I don't know, like I'm in Canada, so sometimes we don't think about the cost of medical procedures when it comes to emergency stuff but in the u.s if you go to have your breasts repaired or to have uh, tissue reconstructed after a problem it's it could cost a lot if people try to save money initially they may end up spending tens of thousands to recover what they'd hope they look like so is that not covered under insurance is that what you're saying 
We'll cover emergency treatment for infections and to remove breast implants and things like that. But reconstructive work, yeah, you'll spend many thousands to have repair work if it goes wrong. I've definitely met a number of patients who they weren't treated with the surgeons that I worked with, but they came to us for repair work. And these were people who'd been on their road of reconstruction for years. They'd had multiple surgeries and that is so discouraging and it's so expensive. I feel really bad for those people. So so, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't predict what's going to go wrong, but other times you can look back and think, well, that initial choice was made really hastily. It was, it was not a good surgeon to go to. So why would a breast augmentation or a tummy tuck have to be repaired? Like one of the, some of the things that they don't do well, right. don't know these physicians or surgeons you're going to go see. So we don't know their skill set and how competent mm-hmm. they are at that skill set. What are you finding that when it, something does go wrong, mm-hmm. they make those mistakes? And then what's the end result to make sure they can actually start living their life again? Someone needs to know like what that looks like mentally. Yeah so they can help make that decision. We have a saying in cosmetic surgery that your follow-up care is just as important as the procedure itself. Follow-up care means that you're under the watchful eye of an expert who's making sure that you're healing well. One of the things that can go wrong is delayed healing, which sounds simple, but if you wait an extra week or two to have that incision close, you're opening yourself up to infection and tissue death. If you're looking at something like a tummy tuck, when you've had all the the blood flow change in that large area of tissue and you're trying to recover and form new connections, if that incision is not closing, then that patient is at a higher risk each day exponentially for problems. You want to make sure that those patients are being seen in person by an expert who can look at that and say, you know, that's a little red. That looks a little too puffy. Ask them questions about how they're feeling. Watch out for things that aren't normal. And it's easy to let that slip under the radar if you're getting information long distance on Skype from a surgeon who says, oh, that sounds fine. A common side effect that you could experience with a tummy tuck is just a buildup of fluid, which is common. It's it's fairly normal. It's not necessarily a problem. It's certainly not an emergency. But if it's not managed... If it's not drained, if there's not compression put in place and the patient monitored, then that pocket of fluid doesn't allow the tissue to come together. You can wind up with patients that have seromas for weeks and weeks and are not being monitored and not having that dealt with. And then what is actually a fairly simple problem becomes a major problem. So you, I mean, you asked earlier what could go wrong, uh, even though it would be considered rare, what, what can go wrong with wounds that don't heal properly is that they cannot close, you can get infections and you can have tissue loss. If we were using the example of a tummy tuck scar, you can have people lose tissue and wind up with kind of a, a hole, a gap, a large scar that won't come together, mm. which is incredibly discouraging. Once that is healed under close management by your doctor, by your surgeon, and any infection is cleared up and it's nice and healed, you still have a large scar to deal with. That's definitely something that can go wrong. Scars are unpredictable and people don't all heal at the same rate. Everybody's body is a little different. No surgeon can promise you an invisible scar or a perfect scar or well-hidden, right? Because 
it might not be. That's one of the things I would like to see more clearly advertised and explained to people is that any kind of cosmetic surgery or aesthetic procedure like injections and things like that, they are not guaranteed. You can put yourself in the hands of somebody really experienced, really skilled, and you can count on a great result probably, but there are always individual differences in people's bodies and healing rates that create a variable. That brings that to a a really different segue into this. What about the prep to go into a procedure like that? Is there a meal plan you need to follow? Is there a certain you need to stay away from sugars or hydration levels? You have to drink so much mm-hmm. water at a time. And I'm just using really simple nutrition ideas just to kind of give people the idea. And my relation to that uh, or equivocation would be if someone has a total knee upcoming and they're 100 pounds of weight, well, they have to lose at least 50 to 60 pounds before they can undergo. They have to be medically ready and approved sure. before they can go do that. Is that the same for cosmetic surgery? I would say yes, even though there's not a standard across the board, right? There's not a list of rules that everybody follows for that. But I would I would think like you, I definitely agree with that, that if you're going to put yourself through some kind of stress, which any surgery is, then you can bolster yourself ahead of time with not only nutrition, but then working on your headspace too, to get prepared to be stressed, prepared to go through some pain prepared to be incredibly inconvenienced for a couple of weeks. And all of that really takes a toll. Certain things you have to avoid before any surgery or injections would be anything that thins your blood. And there are definitely medications and supplements that will make you bleed more easily. We would always ask patients to avoid things like your omega-3 supplements or ginseng is another one. There's a lot of them. Imagine if someone's using the getaway package, they're not... Mm. Probably, and I don't want to assume, but they're probably not being told the same information from an accredited, certified surgeon. Yeah, I think the issue is that it is so variable. So there's there's probably some pretty good ones out there that are doing their best and and very thorough with their instructions and follow-up, but there's others who aren't. I have definitely read stories of people posting a question on Real Self saying, hey, I'm bleeding out of five places and I don't feel well, what should I do? And all these surgeons are like, oh my gosh, get to emerge. But this, this patient was cleared and sent off that way without detailed instructions, without knowing what to expect and kind of out there alone with serious healing. So you've mentioned a couple of times, actually, I would say at least three or four times already about patients don't know what to expect. It needs to be a clearer form of communication back. I write for the plastic surgeons who communicate with their patients. So my role is as a, as a writer for doctors and for nurses and naturopaths and people like that is that I create the patient communication they need. I write their, their pre and post-op packages or their articles that describe treatments in detail, right? And, and FAQs and websites and all that kind of online learning. I don't want to make it sound as though there aren't wonderful cosmetic surgeons doing a brilliant job of that in in the States and in Canada, for sure. I've met a ton of them. They do a really good job. It's just that there are still many who don't, and there's still a lot of patients out there looking for critical information that they should have. So Um, can I ask for a favor for this podcast? Can you mm -hmm. give me all the links of you were to get cosmetic-based surgery, those links that you would refer to yourself and read yourself before you would undergo that procedure. 
Yeah, so in, uh, in Canada, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and in the U.S., the American Plastic Surgery Association, I believe. I'm going to give you both of those links. Those are the main regulatory bodies that you can go there to find out about surgeons, to find out who is this person, are they qualified, and stick with qualified medical journals that are giving detailed explanations about procedures Some surgeons' websites are incredibly thorough and really great sources, but some of them aren't. So yeah, you'll get a little variability once you get into independent practices and what they're putting online. It can vary. The discrepancy is online, the internet, it can be skewed very easily. And you have negative posts taken down if you pay for it. Everything's for sale on the internet. Moving forward, let me ask you this. Is there anything I haven't asked that someone should know before they consider, undergo, make that final decision about cosmetic surgery? I would definitely encourage people to spend a lot of time researching and asking questions and not to feel bad about it, not to hesitate to have multiple consultations and ask a ton of questions. And that might sound funny, but that's actually something I've seen is that people feel bad taking up their doctor's time or they're shy and they don't want to impose. And I would just say that to feel empowered and understand what information you're entitled to and the fact that you're allowed to ask questions and shop around and that that's important. We really encourage people to feel confident doing that. So the other thing I found really interesting too is you're really like a patient advocate to make sure that, because this is a major surgery. Yeah. So I really appreciate that about what you're doing. Another really cool item about you is that you volunteer with a local organization for men ending human trafficking in this world. Men Ending Trafficking is a fabulous uh, organization here in Toronto and some of my work with them actually overlapped in my role at a cosmetic surgery clinic. We would once in a while have people come in who didn't seem to be there, you know, of their own volition or who uh, maybe were pretty young and were with a much older person. And that would prompt me to spend some time with them and ask more questions and find out a little bit about them and make sure that they were comfortable. There's a huge, as I'm, I'm sure you've heard before, unfortunately, a huge underground world of sex trafficking that goes on in, in the States, in Canada It's really good to be vigilant and just keep your eye out and look for those kinds of signs of somebody that might be in distress or might be uh, with somebody against their will. Just because I guess if you're more attentive, you're more likely to pick it up. I've heard amazing stories of uh, airline flight attendants spotting something unusual and intervening. And so hopefully the, the awareness around that increases, but men ending trafficking is fantastic. I'll give a little plug to them because it's specifically an organization designed to give guys the permission and, you know, invite to get involved. This is often considered a woman's issue. It's a, it's about empowering women. And so women understandably would dominate the conversation, but there are plenty of great, decent guys out there who would like to help and who would like to be involved and understand more. And men ending trafficking is designed to invite them to the table and invite them to get involved. One of the ways they do that is go to court with young women who are charging their trafficker 
and going through the stressful and sometimes frightening process of having to stand trial and show up day after day being threatened. We surround those women with 30 or 40 guys that go everywhere with her and don't leave her alone. And when we have women too, who will stay with her, go to the washroom with her so that they have a crowd of supportive, encouraging people to walk them through that experience. Wow. That's great. That's unbelievable. Thank you for doing that. I know there's other topic point about the biome. The, the microbiome in relation to cosmetic surgery is, is not something that I've researched, but I would love to. It's, it's on my to-do list for sure. Not only for healing, uh, but also for the mental process, for the psychology around how people recover and how they feel about themselves. I have seen incredible links that suggest the way we feel and the way we think is also influenced by that and recovering from plastic surgery this is something i would i would say that i i wish more people talked about and knew it can be incredibly stressful and it's very common for people to experience some temporary depression and a letdown and kind of an emotional roller coaster after having a cosmetic surgery even if they're happy balanced people it can surprise you what spawns that to come alive there have been a few studies uh Certainly being on strong pain medication affects your thought processes, affects your mood, uh, stress, definitely. Being isolated, if you're normally a very active person, you go to the gym and you socialize and you're out and about, and then all of a sudden you're at home kind of shuffling from the couch to the bed, that's really rough for a lot of people. A lot of people have a hard time with that. There may also be other elements. I think psychologically, there's been some discussion around the idea that making a huge decision and changing your body and changing your, your image of yourself is a traumatic transition. There's a moment a week or two after surgery when people sit with their decision and start to feel a little regret or confusion about what they've done. And that can really weigh heavily it's a big decision, you know, often a very expensive decision. So there's some financial stress with that. But there's also the idea of changing how you look and how you perceive yourself. You know, Scott, I'm not an expert on this at all, but I do find it really interesting. And I can say from a personal perspective, having walked with patients side by side through their transformation journey for years, that that really came up a lot. And it often surprised people that they dealt with some depression or extreme stress after surgery. So I think to your point earlier about prep, preparing yourself to make, make a big change and have a really great experience in recovery, certainly getting mentally prepared, planning for the realities of what's difficult about recovery, planning to be healthy eat well, exercise, drink lots of water, get your body in some in good shape before you take on something that's going to be kind of overwhelming and a big emotional and physical strain. One of the things you talked about there real quick, and this is something you probably don't know, I don't want to assume that you do, but you talked about the financial stress. Mm. Have you met people that put themselves in significant debt to have this type of surgery? Taking out medical loans is very common. I've definitely met people who were feeling stressed and guilty about their decision to take out a large financial loan. People who maybe their income doesn't really support the price of the procedure they've chosen. 
that's a, a component. And you know, these days it's easier than ever to get a financial loan. And the interest is very high. So you can stretch that thing out for five years while you're paying it off and you pay a ton of interest in the meantime. Well, that's the other thing too. So if you have someone who just financed their procedure and it goes sideways, so we talked about earlier, okay, they might have the money to fix themselves. Right, exactly. If you've gone to someone who is not very qualified to save money, and then in the long run, you end up spending another you know, 10 or 15 or $20,000 to do some repair work, that changes things. Thankfully, it's not the norm, but it happens often enough that this is a reality people should talk about. They should know that that's a possibility. And as far as stats, percentage of who comes out correct the first time versus mm. incorrect the first time, yeah. are there stats there? Revision rhinoplasty is fairly common. I believe it's about 15% of procedures that will need a secondary one. So the chances are nearly 100% that you're going to need another procedure at some point. So nothing lasts forever. So even that corrected procedure has to be corrected again? It, especially if you're, if you're looking at implants, yes. So for, I mean, for a tummy tuck, no, you do it once and hopefully you don't, you're not going to need another one. But for breast augmentation, you can count on needing to go back and lift them, change them, do something in 10 years, in 15 years. It only lasts for about 10 years, right? Today's breast implants are incredibly advanced compared to where they were a decade or so ago. So the newer generation of cohesive silicone gel implants are really designed to last. They don't actually have an expiration date per se. They used to say take them out at 10 years just to be safe, and that's no longer the case. They can last a very long time, but no surgeon is comfortable saying that these will last forever. No medical device lasts forever. And they do, a, a small percentage of them have flaws. They can break. They can leak. It's possible. Each patient needs to understand that there is no guarantee of longevity on their procedure. They may need another one. They can count on coming back at some point. What happens when breast augmentation and they have a leak? I'll tell you something about breast augmentation that the general public has yet to catch up with kind of the advancements there. And there's some good news that cohesive silicone gel implants have a gummy bear kind of texture which means that it's not a free-flowing liquid inside of that implant. In the old days, when you would hear about breast augmentation ruptures in the 80s and, and 90s sometimes, it was an emergency because all of a sudden you've got silicone flowing in the body. Not good. Today, all the silicone gel implants that are legal and approved to be put inside of people in, in the States and Canada, they have a gummy bear kind of texture. They can still rupture, but it's not an emergency if that happens. What it typically means is that you might get a misshapen look or feel. Your doctor will advise you to go ahead and have that replaced at your earliest convenience. So what about when someone puts in like the fake silicone muscles? Right, what, butt what? implants. Well, one thing you'll notice if you, if you do a little research on butt implants is that there are fewer surgeons willing to do them. And there's a good reason for that. The complication rates for butt implants are quite high. And this, the same goes with muscular implants. It's a firmer kind of silicone that's used for that. And they do tend to shift. They can flip. Depending on where you put them in the body, it may be difficult to heal that incision. So for butt implants, you've got a little incision kind of central between the butt cheeks. 
you're putting implants in through there, right? And then you're trying to heal and the chances for something going wrong, given the proximity of that implant are fairly high. And then there's just uh, the unpredictability of, you know, using those big, strong muscles every day with an implant sitting on top. They don't have the excellent track record that breast implants do. Well, that, that popped up because I remember seeing there was this kid on the news. It was on MTV or something like that. And I remember he had all these implants all over him. He, he had the chest implant, oh. the bicep implant, the shoulder. And I was like, wow, that, that dude's pretty jacked. It was all fake. See, this is, you know, you were talking about how women have the influence of unrealistic beauty ideals kind of bombarding us all over the place, right? But I think men are suffering with that as well. Yeah, there's no doubt. Another concern I have, which is kind of a growing trend, is videos that are promoting DIY procedures. This is actually becoming a bigger problem than I would have ever expected. With YouTube the way it is and, and video content, there are not only like lay persons, but also doctors online filming self-injection and demonstrating how to do, say, filler, facial filler injections or on various body parts. It can have the effect of giving the impression that this is low risk, that it's easy, that, that, you, could, that you should DIY any of this is, is a terrible idea. With the availability of videos and how-to demonstrations, then there are now a growing number of cases of people injecting themselves with things like Vaseline. I've read uh, numerous uh, tragic stories of people doing this because they've gotten the impression that it's not a big deal since videos kind of make it look easy. So videos will make it look right, but they're not showing what's happening three, four, or seven days after yeah. the infection. We started watching a Netflix documentary talking about the cosmetic business, the billion-dollar or the multi-billion-dollar business that it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, uh, talking about what was going on in that industry about all the, the hack jobs that are out there and all the false products that are being purchased on sure. Amazon social sites and then the adverse effects that happened on people. And one of them specifically they highlighted right in the beginning of the documentary – there was actually super glue inside of a lipstick. Oh, gosh. It was this major trend and someone, you know, they copied it and they, and they stole it and they branded it as that product. And then they put it on and that's what they came out with. So are you seeing that as well? What are you seeing in that discussion point? A lot of this stuff I come across when I'm researching because I'm writing for my clients who are plastic surgeons. I'm, I'm writing their information that they communicate to patients with. And in order to do that, I do a lot of research and I come across all kinds of frightening stuff. One of the areas that we're really trying to crack down on is fake Botox. So it's marketed as a neuromodulator that will reduce wrinkles, right? Reduce muscle movement. But people are bringing in products from China that are not regulated, not safe, not necessarily effective. Then they're having people who are not doctors or not overseen by a doctor injecting them. Botox is incredibly popular and it can be really safe. But when you've got counterfeit products coming in, all bets are off. It's not safe to inject that in your face, right? 
They are investigating and cracking down on a number of spas and salons that are selling this based on some flags that you'll see, like incredibly low pricing or a clinic that doesn't have a doctor is also a problem because that is a prescription medication. You can't be injecting people with that and not have them seen and assessed by a doctor. There's ways that you can look for the clinics that are kind of bad actors in this area and crack down on them. I get the impression that it's pretty difficult. This is a really like a widespread problem. Wow. Okay. Going back to your main point is do your due diligence, do your homework before. Right. I would recommend that anybody be suspicious of something that is priced too good to be true. That's just such a true thing when it comes to cosmetic surgery or any aesthetic procedure that you get what you pay for. Your trusted clinic can have deals on, they can have sales, that's okay. But if, if it's an incredibly low price you're being offered and it seems too good to be true, I would recommend being highly suspect of the quality of care that you're going to receive and even the the products that are being offered. Heather, final word. What do you got? Final word. Well, one of my my biggest interests is in helping independent practitioners to market ethically and successfully because I understand how patients buy and I also understand how care providers provide their care. I'd like to see an intersection of these two worlds where practitioners are communicating really well, really effectively, and really honestly about procedures that they're offering and educating their patients, their buyers. On the flip side, I would like to see the general public feeling empowered to ask questions and find information that will keep them safe and to talk openly about all these procedures they're interested in and not go just searching for random anecdotes online to get their advice. (laughs) And ending this, you're going to give me all the websites that someone would need to refer to. We'll put that all in the podcast. I'll send you those links. Thank you for doing that. That's going to be really important for people to refer to. People don't know this yet, but you're looking at a future podcaster, uh, someone who wants to bring this topic to the masses and other variables that are aligned with it. I wish Heather all the success definitely going to help you out and let you know what to do, what not to do, all that kind of stuff in the beginning. I definitely learned some lessons myself. Uh, I need all the help I can get. (laughs) You can find Heather at quilldrive.com. That's Q-U-I-L-L drive.com. Her email is Heather at quilldrive.com. Do you know what you're going to call your podcast yet? It's going to be the cosmetic distillery. I'm pretty sure. There you go. We, We pushed it first. So we got it. We love it. I'll also give you her LinkedIn profile so you can ask her direct questions. I think that's going to be really invaluable. Welcome people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Awesome. Heather, thank you. And thank you for everyone who is listening. This is uh, Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess with Heather Haka. And uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. What'd you think? Easy, right? Yeah. Well, there you have it. The ins and outs of plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures. Please use the links in the podcast notes to inform where applicable, and please share this episode. You never know who may be contemplating on the inside a change in the outside, and sharing Heather's intimate knowledge will make a difference. I hope this conversation empowers and educates the Healthcare 360 best and brightest. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoy the conversation, please share this podcast and give us a review. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you enjoy listening. 
If you want the conversation to continue, you can find us on Twitter at hc360podcast or healthcare360podcast.com. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess with Healthcare360. See you next time.